Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament. Uh, We're picking back up a sermon series through the book of Hebrews, and I I think it was like June when I stopped preaching, so it's been a while since we've been in there. Um, And I'm excited about it. So we're about halfway through the book of Hebrews. Today's title of the sermon is Melchizedek the Great. Melchizedek the Great. I'm going to talk more about Melchizedek, and you'll see why in just a little bit. Uh, we're going to have lots of Bible this morning, so get ready for your Bible drill. So I'm gonna be, we're going to be moving around a lot. Um, and, and one thing before I forget, I'll, and I'll talk about this later, but Melchizedek, just like so many things in the Old Testament, the point of Melchizedek is to point forward to Jesus Christ. He's a type of Christ, but we'll talk more about that. Um, just as a reminder, because it's been a while, the, the theme of Hebrews is this, that real faith is a persevering faith. In other words, genuine faith in Jesus Christ is a faith that perseveres all the way to the end. And so the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to persevere in our faith. And the the great themes of Hebrews are not only perseverance, but their endurance and suffering and also looking forward to eternity. So those are kind of big picture things. And a huge part of Hebrews also that the writer is encouraging us is he's saying that we must hold fast to Jesus. And the reason we must hold fast to Jesus is because Jesus is greater than anything else. He starts out by saying that Jesus is greater than the prophets. Then he says that Jesus is greater than the angels. He says Jesus is greater than Moses. And now he's talking about Jesus being our great high priest. And this is really, the if you're going to look at a passage in Scripture or, or a section in Scripture about Jesus being our high priest, Hebrews is the place. So that's what the writer is developing. And what he is saying is that Jesus' priesthood is better than the priesthood of the Old Covenant. It's better than the priesthood of the Old Testament. Now, let me give you some context here as we're in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 5.10, that was a, two chapters ago, the writer looks like he's going to start talking about Jesus being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He introduces this idea back in chapter 5. And you think he's going to start talking about it then, but he takes a detour. And for over a chapter, he's talking to a congregation, a local church like us, and for over a chapter, he both chastises and he encourages the congregation. And basically, he tells them to grow up. He says, by now you should be feeding on the meat of God's word. He says, but you can only handle spiritual milk. So they need to grow up. And then at the end of Hebrews chapter 6, he again picks up this thought about Jesus' priesthood. So if you look at the very end of chapter Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, he says, Jesus has gone on as a forerunner on our behalf, having... And he picks it up again, becoming a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so he's, he's starting this discussion. He's resuming this discussion about Jesus being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Then at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 7, he's going to start talking about how great Melchizedek is. And if you don't know anything about Melchizedek, that's okay, because there's not a lot in the scriptures about Melchizedek. 
Today we're going to look at just the first three or four verses from Hebrews chapter 7. Um, I thought about trying to cover through verse 10, but I, I, and we will pick up the pace in the future, but right now I just want to focus on just the first uh, three or four verses. I don't want to rush through this because I was thinking about it. I may never preach on Melchizedek again, so I don't want to just rush through it in like, in like a week or two. All right, so let's read, let's get the context and read Hebrews 7. We'll, we'll do verses 1 to 4, okay? Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 4. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, and we'll talk about this, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, a tithe. He, he's talking about Melchizedek, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, we'll talk about this, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And then verse 4, he's telling, this is why we're calling the sermon Melchizedek the Great, see how great this man was, see how great Melchizedek was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, okay? And then the writer in, in chapter 7, he's going to go on and talk more about Jesus being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, now here's the challenging part. I'm guessing when you first read this passage and the rest of Hebrews 7, my guess is you're going to hear all this stuff and you're going to say, I have no idea what this means. <laughs> I'm clueless. And we can, see, we can do this. We can say, I don't see any relevancy to me at all in my life. I don't see how this is relevant at all to me. That's our tendency. And a lot of times, if we read the Bible and if we don't have, see some immediate relevance to our lives, we just move on to something else. We just discard it. We don't ponder it. We don't meditate on it because it's difficult. Instead, we just move on. But here's the thing. Remember what the writer has been telling us. He's telling you, he's saying, you guys are spiritual babies and you need to grow up. If we do that, if we don't ponder these difficult passages, then what we're showing, if we're not pondering the deep truths of God, then what we're showing is that we're spiritual babies. So we're kind of proving to the writer that we are spiritual babies if we just want to move on, if we say, I don't see any application for us. Because that's what, as I said, that's what the writer has already said. He says, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But he's saying, this is meat. This is like a steak. This is like the steak of God's word, and it requires you to chew on it. And for me personally, my experience has been when we chew on the deep truths of God, the payoff is a big one. It's really wonderful. I know it's difficult, and if you're a new Christian, it's okay. If you, if you kind of check out, I want you to stay with me as you can. But, but if you check out, I get it because some of this stuff is deep. But what I found is it's really worth it. And so for the next few weeks while I'm in the pulpit, I'm going to ask you to spend some time thinking about Jesus being our high priest, what that means, how that applies to us, and what type of priest Jesus is. Okay, so again, title of the sermon is Melchizedek the Great. And what the writer is telling us in the book of Hebrews is that, again, Melchizedek's priesthood is a better priesthood. That's the main idea, that Jesus' priesthood, which is according to the order of Melchizedek, and we'll find out what that means, 
It's better than the Old Testament priesthood. Okay? That's what Jesus' priesthood is better. Now, here's the underlying issue. The, the writer to the Hebrews, the reason this is called Hebrews is because the writer is writing to Jewish Christians. He's writing to Hebrews, okay? And for Jewish believers, this idea of Jesus being a priest was a huge struggle for them. It's not to us, but it was for them. And here's why. Abraham was the father of the faith, right? And we're going to talk about Abraham. He's called Abram. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob is also known as Israel. So Israel and Jacob are a man, the same same man. And then Jacob or Israel had 12 sons, okay? And then those 12 sons started having kids and grandkids. And each one of those 12 sons became a tribe. So these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob, or the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, one of those tribes, I'm going to kind of, a little Bible trivia here, one of those tribes was the kingly tribe. God's prophecy said that one of the tribes of Israel was the tribe where the kings would come from. And the kingly tribe was, anyone know? Judah, that's right, Judah. Judah was the kingly tribe. And David came from that tribe. David was a king. He was a descendant of Judah. Also, Jesus was from that line. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. In fact, Jesus is called the lion from the tribe of Judah. So Jesus is the king. Okay. So picture yourself as a, as a Jewish believer in the first century. You hear that Jesus is the king. Well, that makes total sense because Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. But here's the problem. Jesus is not only the king. He's our great high priest. Okay? And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is stressing, that Jesus is our high priest. But here's why this is a problem for Jewish people. Because the Jewish people knew that priests could not come from the tribe of Judah. Okay, In the Old Testament, there was only one tribe of priests. And the priestly tribe was, yeah, I'll be like Ferris Bueller, right? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? The priestly tribe was Levi. That's right. The priestly tribe was Levi. So the Levites were priests, and God said only the Levites could be priests. And you couldn't have a king who did priestly duties. In fact, if you read about Saul, Saul, King Saul tried to take over priestly duties, and God was mad. That's a sin. So a king was supposed to be separated from the priests. Okay? Now, do you see the issue? So Jesus was not from the priestly tribe. So the question for these Jewish believers was... I don't see how Jesus could be a priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi. In fact, if you look down at Hebrews 7, verse 14, look down at Hebrews 7, verse 14, and the writer says this, for it is evident that our Lord, he's talking about Jesus, for it is evident that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So Jesus is from Judah. These Jewish believers don't understand how Jesus could be a priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi. So this was the struggle for these Jewish believers. Now, here's part of the solution, and I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to keep your place in Hebrews 7, but turn to Psalm 110. So flip back to the left, keep your place in Hebrews, and we're going to look at Psalm 110, okay? Psalm 110 is this massively important passage, Because 
Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. And it's my understanding that the New Testament writers quote from Psalm 110 more than any other Old Testament passage. So this little psalm, it's not very long, Psalm 110 is just massively important because it's a prophecy about the Messiah. It's an Old Testament passage prophesying about the Messiah. So let's read Psalm 110. We're just going to look at a couple of verses. Look at verse 1. And you're going to see, what you're going to see in this is both the king and the priestly aspect of the Messiah, okay? So look at Psalm 110, verse 1. It says this, the Lord says to my Lord, that's actually two different words. If you see that all, I'm kind of doing an aside thing. If you see that all caps Lord, that first one, the Lord says to my Lord, and then it's Lord and it's lowercase O-R-D. It's, I, I think it's Yahweh says to my Adonai. Okay, so there are two different words. But anyway, it's the Lord. God says to my Lord, my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay? This is a prophecy, as I said, about Messiah, about him being the conquering king. This is saying that Messiah will sit on the throne at the right hand of the Father and he will rule over all. So all of God's enemies will be placed under the feet of the Messiah until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, so the Messiah will be this king, and he will conquer all of, of his enemies, all right? And this is King Jesus. He is from the tribe of Judah. He's the Messiah prophesied here in Psalm 110. Now look down at verse 4, Psalm 110, verse 4. This is still a wonderful prophecy about the Messiah. We've already seen he's going to be king on a throne. Look at verse 4. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is about the Messiah. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this prophecy from Psalm 110, the same passage, it says the Messiah will not only be king, but he will be a priest. Now again, I'm going to say it again because it's so important. Psalm 110, a psalm about the Messiah, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah, said that the Messiah will be both a king and a priest. That's this huge thing. But notice this, Psalm 110 in verse 4 says that the Messiah will not be a priest from the order of Levi. No, the Messiah will be a priest from a different order, the priestly order of Melchizedek. That's what it says in Psalm 110 verse 4. So again, Psalm 110 is this huge thing. The, the apostles and New Testament writers were constantly talking about Psalm 110, um, also, Jesus talked about Psalm 110. He confronted the Pharisees with Psalm 110. So again, this prophecy is talking about a king and a priest, and the, and the Messiah would be a priest from the order of Melchizedek. So in many ways, what the writer to the Hebrews is doing is explaining Psalm 110, specifically Psalm 110, verse 4. All right, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. And as I said, in the next month or so, I want to encourage you to really wrestle with and pray and spend time thinking about Jesus being your high priest and what that means, okay, as we go through this. Look at Hebrews 7, again, verses 1 and 2. So this is a description of Melchizedek. So the Old Testament prophecy said the Messiah would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So now this is a description in Hebrews 7, verses 1 and 2 about Melchizedek. Let's look at it again. It said, for this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. 
And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. We're going to stop there for a second. So this is a brief summary. What this account is, is a brief summary of Genesis 14 and what is called the slaughter of the kings. That's, what he, that's the phrase that he uses there in verse 1. So in fact, I'm going to ask you again to turn, keep your place in Hebrews 7, and turn to Genesis 14. We're going to look at that very briefly, okay? So go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and find Genesis chapter 14. And while you're turning, I'm going to give you some of the context of what's going on in in, uh, Genesis 14. This was during the time of Abraham. He was called Abram at this time. I'll probably just call him Abraham to keep it simple. And during this time in history, each town would, each little town would have basically a mayor. They called them kings. And each little town also would have a, a little army, a little a group of fighting men. Okay? And sometimes these kings or these mayors would gather together and form coalitions, and sometimes they would attack and, and fight each other. All right? And that's what happened at this time. So there were a group of these kings who went and attacked each other. And Abraham's nephew, Lot, at this time, was living in the town of Sodom. And when this battle happened, Lot and his family were captured. Okay? And in response, so Lot and his family were captured. In response, Abraham gathered up his fighting men. There were more than 300 of them. And Abraham and his men organized a raid. So he conducted this raid at night. And they won this great battle. And Abraham rescued Lot and his family. Okay. Also, they took back the property that had been stolen by these other kings. So this, as I said, this is the slaughter of the kings. That's what it's talking about in Hebrews 7.1. So let's look at Genesis 14 and start. We're going to start in verse, verse 14. So this is Genesis 14 beginning in verse 14. And this is describing, again, how Abraham and Melchizedek, this whole thing. Because so I just want you to see the actual passage. Genesis 14, 14. When Abram heard that his kinsman, Lot, had been taken, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So Abraham's fighting men defeated the fighting men of these four kings. It was a surprise attack at night, and they routed them. Verse 16, then he, Abram, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people, okay? So after Abraham won this great battle, he's returning, and in the middle of the story, we're introduced to Melchizedek. This guy Melchizedek appears. Now, here's the odd thing about Melchizedek. He shows up in a few verses here in Genesis 14. He never shows up again. This is it. The only time you see him again is a thousand years later in this prophecy from Psalm 110. And that's all he's, that's the entire story of Melchizedek, okay? But here's the, here's the story. This is Genesis 14, beginning verse 17. After his, Abram's return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Now, this is probably the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem, okay? It's probably in that same area. Um, Verse 18, and Melchizedek, here's where we're introduced to him, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So he brings out bread and wine to Abram. 
and it says he was priest of God most high. And one of the things that's interesting is just right there in, in verse 18, the word priest. This is the first time the word priest is ever mentioned in the Bible, right there in verse 18, okay? And, and it's in, so the first person in Genesis who is ever called a priest is Melchizedek. That seems to have some significance because the priestly line came as descendants of Abraham. There are no priests yet. This is the first time that a priest is mentioned, and it's Melchizedek. Also, he is priest of God Most High. We're going to talk about what that word is. The Hebrew word is El Elyon, God Most High. And we're going to talk more about that. But Melchizedek is a priest. The bottom line is Melchizedek is a priest of the true God. Melchizedek is a priest of the same God that Abraham is worshiping. Okay? All right, verse 19. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said... And notice he uses the words again. We're going to talk about this. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. Verse 20. And blessed be, he says, praise be to God most high, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right. So Melchizedek was king of Salem. Salem later became the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, okay? So Melchizedek, as I said, was also the priest of God, the true and living God. And one of the things that is interesting about this is that although God revealed himself to Abraham, what we see is that there were other people like Melchizedek who were not descendants of Abraham, but they were worshiping the true God. So Melchizedek is worshiping the true God. He's a priest. He's the first priest mentioned in the scriptures. And he had a personal relationship with God. Something else about Melchizedek. And I mentioned some of this in the email I sent to the church this week. When you follow the timeline of the genealogies in the early chapters of Genesis, when you start looking at these genealogies and these timelines, like in Genesis chapters 9 through 11, which is after the flood, so after Noah's Ark, when you start looking at these timelines, it seems very reasonable that Melchizedek could have been alive during the time of both Noah and his son Shem. And both of these, both Noah and Shem were on the ark. So Noah was on the ark with his wife and three sons and their wives. And one of Noah's sons was Shem. He was a worshiper of the true God. So what's interesting to me is Melchizedek could have been alive even while Noah and Shem we're still living. And I'm trying to tell you this to give you sort of an idea. This wasn't like thousands of years after the flood. It's, it's a fairly short period of time. Now, I'm going to do a little speculation here, okay? I normally don't do this, but in this case, I think it's worth it because I think it helps to understand sort of the time frame of when Mel Abraham and Melchizedek lived. I, I found this fascinating. Abraham may have been born during the lifetime of Shem, or he may have been born just a couple years after Shem died. Okay? It may have been further back, but it may, he may have been born just right after Shem died, which is pretty incredible to me. Also, since Melchizedek is a ruling king of Salem, which later became Jerusalem, it's, it looks like, just to my eyes, it looks like Melchizedek was probably older than Abraham because elders at this time were highly respected and they were often in positions of authority. So again, Melchizedek could have been alive during the lifetimes of both Noah and Shem. Even so the people that had been on the ark, Melchizedek could have been alive during that time. 
In fact, it's very possible that Melchizedek even met Shem, and it's possible that, that Shem even told Melchizedek about the true God, okay? Now, again, this is speculation, but I do think it's entirely possible that Melchizedek was taught about the true God by Shem, maybe even Noah himself, all right? Now, I'm going to get in a little bit about Melchizedek. Some people who are Mormons and some Jews since about like 160 AD, Mormons and Jews after about 160, believe that Melchizedek was Shem. Because Melchizedek seems to be a title, and they think that Melchizedek was Shem. I don't think that's correct. And one of the reasons is, is because the writer to the Hebrews says that Melchizedek was without genealogy. Well, if you look in Scripture, there is a genealogy of Shem all over the place. Okay? There's an extensive and detailed genealogy of Shem in Genesis chapters 9 through 11. So that's one reason. That's the reason I don't think Melchizedek was Shem. But, but as I said, there are people who think that. But again, Melchizedek just kind of appears out of nowhere in Genesis 14. Then he disappears and we never hear about him again until a thousand years later when there's this prophecy in Psalm 110 about the Messiah being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And those are the only two times in the Old Testament where Melchizedek's name shows up. Okay, So what's the significance of Melchizedek? Well, what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us is that Melchizedek, and this is very important, just a principle of interpretation in the Old Testament. Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Jesus. In other words, Melchizedek is a figure who provides a picture pointing forward to what the Messiah would look like, what Jesus the Messiah would look like. So Melchizedek is a type. He's a type of Messiah. He's a type of Christ. In other words, he's a, a picture or a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come. And part of it we see immediately because Melchizedek is, he's both a king and a priest, right? He's a king, he's king of Salem, and he's a priest. He's the first priest mentioned in the Bible. Well, this is what Jesus is. Jesus, just like the prophecy in Psalm 110 said, Jesus the Messiah would be both a king and a priest. And that's what Melchizedek was, a king and a priest. All right. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7, all right? Flip back to Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to, again, I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 again. I'm going to keep stressing this. Hebrews 7, verses 1 and 2. It says, for this Melchizedek, and we just read the story in Genesis 14, but it says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And then it says, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So Malek or Malchi is king, and then Sedek or Zedek is righteous. So the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, Melek Sedek, okay? Then continuing on in the passage, it says, then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. So Salem is like the word shalom. You may have heard the word shalom. Salem, Shalom, same thing, and it means peace, okay? So Melchizedek is not only king of uh, righteousness, but he's the king, he's actually the king of Salem, the king of peace. Now let's look at verse three, and this is where it gets super complex, and this is where people have divided over their understanding of Melchizedek. Look at verse three. It says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, what does that mean? 
It's a very complex statement. And some people have understood from this that Melchizedek is what is called a theophany or a Christophany. That is, a theophany or Christophany is an appearance of God in human form. Okay? So it's where in the Old Testament there were times when God showed up as a human person. Um, So some people have thought that Melchizedek was this, this theophany or Christophany, a pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, I understand the reasoning from this passage. And anyone who thinks that Melchizedek is a theophany or Christophany, I don't think they're out in left field. They may be right. So I don't want to be critical. But I don't believe Melchizedek was a theophany. I believe he was just a man. And I believe he was just a human. And I want to explain why. The main reason I don't think Melchizedek is a theophany is because he holds a political title of a real place. He's the king of Salem, which became Jerusalem. So the king of Salem, he has work to do. He gets up in the morning. He goes to work as the king. He goes into the office, right? He's making administrative decisions. He's dealing with political issues on a day-to-day basis. And as far as I know, there are no other accounts in the Bible of a theophany, an appearance of God, who takes on some political position and he works in that job day after day, year after year. There's just not an account of an appearance of God doing that, okay? So that's the main reason I don't think Melchizedek is a theophany. I think Melchizedek is just a human. Also in verse 3, it says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. To me, that sounds like he resembles the Son of God, but he's not actually the Son of God. Also, This is kind of complex. But remember, Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, if Jesus is the son of God and Melchizedek is the son of God, then Jesus, the son of God, is a priest according to the order of the son of God. That doesn't make sense to me. That that just seems baffling to me. Okay? So that's why I don't think Melchizedek is is Christ. Um, The last one, if you look in Hebrews 7, look at verse 4. The writer says this, see how great Melchizedek was. And then he goes on to explain, why does the writer believe Melchizedek was great? Does he believe that Melchizedek was great because he was God in the flesh? Does he believe that Melchizedek was great because he was the son of God? No. The writer's already said that Jesus is the son of God in the very first chapter. But the writer here doesn't say Melchizedek is great because he's the son of God. He says Melchizedek is great because Abraham gave him a tithe. And because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. But if Melchizedek was the son of God, then it seems the writer to the Hebrews would have said that, that, that this is why Melchizedek is great, okay? Anyway, those are the reasons why I believe that Melchizedek was not a theophany, but he was just a man. He was an actual king and priest, a real political figure in this real place, Salem, which, as I said, became Jerusalem. All right, so what does it mean? That's a weird statement, right? Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What does that mean? I think it means this, and this is a consensus I've seen from most commentators. When it says he's without father or mother or genealogy, it means he's without father or mother or genealogy as recorded in Scripture. There's no record of Melchizedek's mom or dad or his genealogy recorded in the Bible. And when it says that he having neither beginning of days nor end of life, I think it means that there's no beginning of days nor ends of life as recorded in Scripture. There's no record of Melchizedek's beginning or end, okay? There's no record of any of these things. 
And this was important because for the Levitical priesthood, you know how you became a Levitical priest? It wasn't by being a godly person. It wasn't by having certain gifts. It was all genealogy. You had to show that your mom and dad were from the tribe of Levi or descendant of Aaron even. So that was the only qualification was you had to have it written down somewhere. You had to have it written down, your beginning of days and end of life or whatever, your genealogy to show that you were from the line of Levi, the line of Aaron. The only requirement to be a priest was to have the right father and mother and genealogy. And if there was no record of your mom or dad being from the tribe of Levi, then you were excluded from the priesthood. So what I'm trying to do basically is just allow scripture to interpret scripture. And as I said, the only qualification for being a priest was your genealogy. And right here it says there is no genealogy for Melchizedek. That's what he's stressing. So I think that's what, what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about when he says that Melchizedek doesn't have these things because they're not recorded in scripture. Also, a big idea of this passage is that Melchizedek's priesthood is a better priesthood. It's better than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And one of the reasons that Melchizedek's priesthood was better than Levi's is because Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. That's back, we'll look at it more next week. But in Psalm 110, it said the Messiah would be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews is saying Melchizedek's priesthood is, in a sense, an eternal priesthood because there's no record in Scripture of his priesthood ending. Later in the chapter, the writer will talk about how every priest from the tribe of Levi dies, and so their priesthood ends. There's no priest who continues forever. So I think the writer is simply taking a picture, a snapshot of the historical account of Melchizedek as recorded in scriptures, and he's saying, see the snapshot of Melchizedek? We don't know where he comes from. We don't know his genealogy, and we don't have any record of his priesthood ending. And then he's applying that, and he's taking that with Psalm 110 about the Messiah being a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And he's putting all these things together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's putting all these things together, and he's showing that this picture of Melchizedek, which is a foreshadowing of Christ, a type of Christ, he's showing that his priesthood is better. It's an eternal priesthood. So that's what I think he's doing. So... This ancient priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, remember he's the first priest ever mentioned in the Bible, the writer to the Hebrews is saying that this priesthood of the Messiah, this is the order of priesthood that the Messiah would belong to, this is the order of priesthood that Jesus belongs to. All right, now this is difficult, right? This is, this is meat. This is hard to understand, especially when we're dealing with types and shadows. But this is something I want to stress. The New Testament writers, one, they were led by the Holy Spirit, and the inspired author of Hebrews is showing us that, what, this is huge, that what God was doing, not just in this account, but what God was doing in the Old Testament, even with strange figures like Melchizedek, what God was doing in the Old Testament was pointing forward to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this should be huge for us because what we're seeing is that God, who is sovereign, intentionally worked in history, in the Old Testament, and he brought about circumstances and people to be shadows or types or pictures pointing forward to Jesus. And God worked in history to present to us these shadows or types which would be fulfilled in New Testament realities. 
In particular, these Old Testament types and shadows would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's very important for you to understand about when you read the Old Testament, is ask yourself, is there a way that this could be pointing forward to Jesus or to things fulfilled in the New Covenant? Just ask yourself that when you're reading Old Testament, because that's what God was doing. So we need to have eyes to, to see that, okay? So what's the ultimate significance of Melchizedek being a king and priest? It's to point forward to Jesus Christ being both a king and a priest because Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. Jesus fulfills this because he has an eternal priesthood. So the New Testament writers, they understood, again, that these Old Testament people and Old Testament events were orchestrated by God as a foreshadowing to point forward to their greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's the significance of Melchizedek. So if you don't remember anything else, just try to remember that, that Melchizedek is pointing forward and being fulfilled in a greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the great king and our great high priest. All right, I want to close with this. I want, I'm going to ask you again to go back to Genesis 14. We're going to flip back, and, this, and I'm almost done, so hang with me. But I think this is really great. This, this, this is one of those things where you see, and to me, it just gets me excited and pumped up, and I think God is speaking to us in this. Genesis 14, remember we're introduced to Melchizedek. Look at Genesis 14, verse 18. And it says this, and I briefly mentioned it, but Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. That's interesting, right? Lord's Supper, that's the way he offers. That's one interesting aspect of his priesthood. I don't know if it's just for sustenance for Abraham, but maybe it's an act of worship. Could be pointing forward, right? Could be pointing forward to what we're about to partake. Brought out bread and wine. And then it says this, he was priest of God most high. And I mentioned it. That word, God most high, in the Hebrew is El Elyon. El is God and Elion is most high or exalted, okay? It means the sovereign, exalted God of the universe, the one over everything, the one who rules and reigns over all. Now, here's what's really cool about this. In Genesis 14, 18, where we see that Melchizedek is priest of God most high, this is the first time in the Bible that El Elion, God most high, is ever used. It's the first time that word is used. So the first time we ever hear the phrase, God Most High, El Elyon, is when it's referring to Melchizedek, verse 18. He's priest of God Most High. Now look at verses 19 and 20 in Genesis 14, and we start seeing it again. Verse 19, it says, And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by who? God Most High, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And, and then he offers praises to God, and blessed be, there it is again, God most high, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hands, okay? Now, again, prior to Genesis 14, God has never been called God most high until Melchizedek introduces it. Now look down at verse 22, and this is a conversation between the king of Sodom and Abram. Look at Genesis 14, verse 22. Abram is now talking. And look how he refers to God. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord. Look at the phrase he uses. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Where did Abram get that name for God? 
Where did he get that name? He got it from Melchizedek. He got it from back in verse 19 from what Melchizedek said about God. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And what we see is that Abram starts using this phrase for God, El Elyon, God most high. Also, this is incredible. I'd encourage you to do your own study on this. You start to see after this, after Melchizedek introduces it, you start to see El Elyon, God most high, all over the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. If you're reading the Psalms and you ever see most high or God most high, this is Elyon or El Elyon. And it's in, I'll give you just a few, Psalm 7, Psalm 9, Psalm 18, 21, 46, 47, 50, 57, 73, 77, 78, 82, 83, 87, and it goes on. It just keeps on. But again, El Elyon is only used after Melchizedek uses this name, when he's, the name of God when, he's, when it's refer, talking to Abel, uh, when, when Melchizedek introduces it. Now, here's what I see from this. I think it's clear that Melchizedek, when he meets with Abram, in some way, Melchizedek teaches Abram about God. He teaches Abram that the Lord is God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, the exalted one. And as I said, then Abram and many of the Old Testament writers start using this name for God. So I believe in some way that Abram was discipled and taught by Melchizedek. This is how significant Melchizedek is. And, here, and I'm almost done. Here's the point of application for us. The God of the Old Testament is the same God today. This is our God, El Elyon, God Most High. And this God Most High, El Elyon, the exalted God, the sovereign God, who is above heaven and earth, he wants you to know him and to trust him. You can trust him completely because he is God Most High. He is El Elyon, and he wants you to trust him. You can trust him no matter what's going on in your life because the high and exalted one, he is sovereign, he is El Elyon, right? You can trust him. Whether you're experiencing great joy and happiness right now or whether you're going through immense trials and heartache, it doesn't matter. El Elyon is calling you to trust him. God Most High is calling you to lay down your burdens at his feet. You're not in control. You know that? You're not in control. God Most High is in control. The Lord Jesus Christ is in control. He is El Elyon, and he holds the entire universe in the palm of his hand. He controls all the big things, and he controls all the little things. This is one of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon, and I try to say this on a regular basis because I love it. But think about this is El Elyon he's talking about, God Most High, the sovereign God. He said, Spurgeon said this, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every article of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid, little insect, over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of a leaf from a poplar tree, think about one single leaf falling, is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Our God is the exalted one, El Elyon, God Most High. And that means 
that these light and momentary trials that we're going through, these are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all we could ever imagine. And because God is El Elyon, that means that nothing can jeopardize his eternal plan for us because he is sovereign. He is the sovereign God most high. He controls it all. He is El Elyon, and that means you can rest and stop worrying. And I'm preaching that to myself probably more than anybody else. There's an old song that goes like this. It says, many things about tomorrow. I'm going to have to sing it. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. I don't seem to understand. Then it says this. But, but I know who holds tomorrow. I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who holds my hand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. Lord, thank you that you are God most high. You are El Elyon. You are the exalted sovereign one. Thank you that, that you control everything. I pray that as your people, we can lay down our burdens at your feet, knowing that you've got it under control. Please help us with that, Lord. Help me with that. Help all the folks gathered here. Just lay our burdens at your feet, because you are the high and exalted one and you control everything. So rather than us trying to control everything and worry about what's going on and what we can do and all that, I pray that we would just rest in the fact that you are God most high. You're exalted. Lord Jesus, your name has been exalted and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we praise you, help us, Lord, in our hearts just to rest in your sovereignty and your power in the fact that you are God most high. And thank you that you're not just God and exalted and far away. You are the loving God who cares about your people and you want to meet with us and you want us to trust in you. So we pray that you would help us. Thank you, Lord, that you do hold tomorrow, all our tomorrows. And you also, for your people, you hold our hand. And we thank you that you'll never let us go. We praise you, Lord. Thank you for loving us and caring about us. Thank you for being the sovereign God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.